Well, first it was Finland, now Sweden, both Nordic countries continuing to move quickly towards applying to join the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, better known as NATO, a move prompted by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The decision by the two nations to abandon the neutrality they maintained throughout the Cold War uh, would really be one of the biggest shifts in European security in decades. Here's Finnish Foreign Minister Pekka Havisto. Unpredictable behavior of Russia is uh, an imminent uh, issue. Russia is more prepared to carry out operations that are also high-risk operations for Russia itself and will result in high casualties for Russia as well. We are convinced that Finland would bring added value to NATO. Our wartime strength of the defense forces is uh, 280,000 troops and the trained reserve is 900,000 men and women. Keep in mind, Finland has a 1,300-kilometer-long border so this one with Russia, and this will more than double the length of the frontier between NATO and Russia. Uh, the Russians have reacted with somewhat muted anger, angry still, and veiled threats, warning of retaliatory actions, retaliatory actions still after launching that invasion of Ukraine, which was ostensibly to stop NATO from encroaching on its borders. It's instead accelerated NATO expansion, including on its borders. Well, joining me now to discuss this is Stephen Sademan. He holds the Patterson Chair in International Affairs at Carleton University's Norman Patterson School of International Affairs in Ottawa. Welcome to the show. My pleasure, Ben. Um, I was watching the former Swedish Prime Minister Carl Bildt, uh, Carl Bildt today describe this uh, the February 24th invasion of Ukraine as an earthquake uh, in both Finland and Sweden. I guess we're seeing the aftershocks today. How significant is Finland and we expect Sweden soon after this decision to join NATO after all these years? It's, it's very significant because in both countries, the publics were pretty happy until recently, very recently, with uh, not being a part of the alliance. They've both been very involved in alliance activities. They both had troops, for instance, in Afghanistan. They've both participated in other NATO efforts, but as, as uh, partners, not as members. Uh, but the thing about being a partner is it doesn't guarantee you anything, whereas being a member means that attack upon you is equal to an attack upon all. So really, the Article 5 element here is is what you believe is is prompting both the publics in both the countries and and the administration to uh, to go forward with this. Absolutely. Uh, what Russia has demonstrated to the neighborhood is that there's a bright, shiny line that it cares about that you notice in this war where Russia seems crazy and doing all kinds of amazingly dangerous things. They haven't attacked a NATO country. They have attacked a non-NATO country, but they haven't attacked a NATO country, despite the fact that NATO countries are doing their best to arm Ukraine. But there have been no attacks on NATO bases in Poland or on the equipment that is being shipped from Poland or from other countries into Ukraine. And so everybody looks at this and and realizes, well, membership makes a difference. Um, Now, I always have to make clear that there's nothing automatic about Article 5, that the alliance has to come to a consensus that an attack has happened. um, And then they have to come up with a plan to response and then any and all members can opt out of that response that article five has an opt-out clause that it doesn't obligate any country to do anything in particular however it matters a whole lot and it matters a whole lot because the idea is that if you attack a NATO member it can ultimately lead to a confrontation in the united states that might actually involve nuclear weapons and so nobody wants to start that process 
Um, I think that right now, Putin understands that if he were to attack NATO, it would open the doors, not necessarily for a nuclear strike by the United States, but it would open the doors for the United States and its allies using their air power against Russian military formations in Ukraine, and that he doesn't want any part of that. Given that, what did you make of, and of course, Finland has a long, fairly long uh, land border with Russia. What did you make of the Kremlin's response so far? Well, this would be a difference that no country in NATO currently has a long land border. The closest, I guess, is is Turkey. Um, and yes, the Baltics border Kaliningrad. But uh, this would this would be a large land border and one in which there's a history of violence between Finland and what was the Soviet Union. Uh, they fought a very bitter war before World War II, before the, the Soviets were de- directly involved in World War II, and then during World War II, as Finland sided with the Germans against the Russians, or against the Soviets. And so that would be a very different thing. Uh, so I'm not surprised the Russians are upset. Uh, on the other hand, this is what happens in international relations. When you threaten other countries, they tend not to back down. They tend to find allies. They tend to uh, build up their own defenses. This is a basic finding throughout the history of international relations. And so Putin, by doing what he did in 2014, which helped to re-energize the alliance, and what doing what he did in 2022 is actually causing the encircling that he has been complaining about. Um, but in terms of their threats, I'm not sure anybody's really buying uh, Russian threats because Russia has proven to be not nearly as militarily strong as, as people expected, uh, that their performance to Ukraine has not caused other countries to be scared about um, being defeated by Russia. They're just worried about being attacked by Russia. That's a distinction. That's an important one. And so I don't think that the Swedes or the Finns are going to be deterred by this. And in fact, as you see with the public opinion polls, they think that the Russians are aggressive and that they can't face them on their own or would prefer not to face them on their own and would prefer not to have to fight a war like what the Ukrainians are doing and prefer to be in the situation of Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, Poland, and the rest where they don't get attacked at least conventionally. I might get attacked with cyber attacks, those kinds of things. The deterrence obviously being being the big part here. Um, Sweden and Finland are both countries that will, I gather, um, fit quite nicely into the NATO structure. This won't take uh, much doing, and it should happen relatively quickly, I imagine. Yes. In the 1990s and early 2000s, there were several waves of enlargement and they were aimed at countries that did not have a history of democracy and did not have a history of civilian control of the military and did not have a history of, of all kinds of things. Um, and so while all of them, well, almost all of them, Hungary, Poland, uh, Czech Republic at first, and then the second wave of the Baltics and Slovakia and Slovenia and a few others, you know, there were efforts to have conditions placed on their membership. You know, you have to meet certain standards. And while we can argue about whether those standards are met, there's no question that Finland and Sweden are going to fly through. There's not going to be any concerns about whether their democracies are valid, whether the militaries are competent, uh, whether there's good civilian control of the military. Uh, they're far more stable than a, a few members of NATO I can name. Uh, so I don't think there's be a problem. Uh, I do think that the NATO summit in June is probably going to be a situation where they their applications are welcomed and they'll go through a process that will be accelerated. Just how much then has this invasion of Ukraine changed the entire security dynamic? Because we're seeing other NATO existing NATO members, the Baltics in particular, but also other uh, Eastern European NATO members uh, really 
stiffening up their their defensive deterrence. Uh, you get the sense that Vladimir Putin's fears of being encircled by NATO, as you mentioned earlier, uh, that what he did to try to prevent it is, in fact, accelerated it. Uh, how much are we watching in very fast, very quick time, uh, the security dynamic in Europe change? I think it's changing quite a bit. And again, a lot. this is a complete reaction to, to Putin's moves. And this is not the first time. If you take a look back at 2013, 2014, uh, most, if not all, members of NATO were cutting their military budgets. The United States was taking its last tanks out of um, Europe and was trying to pivot to Asia. And so this time around, you're seeing the same thing, but even more so. Uh, Germany, for the past eight years, has been trying to manage the relationship with Russia, has been trying to say, hey, maybe we can help with our relationship, make them a normal, more normal country and limit what they're doing. Uh, we can tie them down with trade. We can encourage their better angels, and maybe that will work out. And they certainly don't want to engage in any real sacrifices, and they didn't want to spend a lot more money in the military. And so I think the biggest shock was not that the Baltics want to spend more money. Uh, the biggest shock in the reaction to this was the, the speech by the German chancellor, where he basically came out and said, we're not only going to get to do 2%, but we're going to spend a lot of money really fast. Now, I'm not sure how much money they're really going to spend really fast. I don't know how much of this could be on new equipment versus just getting the German military into a state of readiness, right? You know, in the, in the past several years, I've lost stories about how their, their planes can't fly, their ships can't sail and tanks can't drive for lack of spare parts, lack of money, whatever. But the German shift is quite dramatic and that really changes the security picture of Europe. So I think that's one of the biggest changes. I think the second biggest change is that it's a weird thing to look at the Russians and think, wow, they're more aggressive, but they're much weaker than we thought. And I think that's going to be something that's going to take a while to shake out, a while to figure out, which is, do we need more military equipment to deter the Russians because they're more aggressive, or do we need less because if the Ukrainians can stop them, there's really no way that, he, that, that Russia can aggress further. I think people are going to hedge and focus more on the first than the second, which is the Russians seem to have engaged in a war of aggression that, that you know, the United States was saying was happening uh, because of their intelligence and their effort to pre-bunk any any kind of false flag efforts by the Russians, but there is that second half of it. We see people like Doug Saunders write pay, write columns about this, where do we really need to have all this military capability in Europe? And again, it goes back to me: is there's this bright shiny line, and it matters. And it matters both because of Article Five, but also because NATO is a far more capable adversary than what the Russians thought that the Ukrainians were. I'm speaking with Stephen Sadman, Patterson Chair in International Affairs at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University in Ottawa. After this, a bit more about uh, Vladimir Putin's calculation here and where it went all so wrong. Uh, we'll be back. I'm speaking with Stephen Sadman. He's the Patterson Chair in International Affairs at uh, Carleton University's Norman Patterson School of International Affairs in Ottawa. Um, it keeps begging the question, what was this just a gross miscalculation on Vladimir Putin's part? Is there some sort of longer game here about NATO and NATO encroachment? Uh, what do you make of the decisions of, of, of the 24th and, and the fact that it's prompted instead of a NATO sort of a NATO collapse? Is, we've seen a NATO, another NATO renaissance. Well, I think that's a really good question. And the, the, the thing is, is if we take a look at both 2014 and 2022, what we see is some commonalities here. And the commonality is not about NATO. It's really about Ukraine, and it's about Ukraine's ties to, to the rest of Europe. That what happened in 2014 was there was a bit of a regime change going on in Ukraine, and that was going to make them closer, not to NATO, but to the European Union. And that was a, a threat to Russia because it meant that Russia would have less influence in Ukraine and that Ukraine could be a model for 
other parts of the former Soviet space and even a model for Russians for an alternative that if the Ukrainians can get their act together and have a stable democracy and a stable economy and do well, then what's that going to say about Putin's rule or about the rule of, of the folks in Belarus or in other places? And then what happened since then was that that was a bad move because, yes, it you know helped to re-energize NATO, but it also changed the political balance in Ukraine because it took away the most Russian-leading parts of the population, that the Crimeans and the folks in eastern uh, Ukraine were no longer really part of the political system, which then meant that you ended up having Zelensky win an election. And that was really bad for Putin because Zelensky is uh, anti-Russian, at least in policy, not if not in spirit, uh, that the country itself was moving further for, and further to the West. And so I think what really mattered in 2021 and the lead up to this was that the Ukrainians put together a regime, a democracy that was just doing a whole lot of things that was going to make it more stable and more successful. And that was the real threat to Russia because it's really not that NATO is a threat to the country, the Russian, the existence of Russia or the, or anything. It's that Ukraine and the EU are threats to Putin's regime, that Russia has nuclear weapons. So it really doesn't have to fear invasion. And NATO was never going to have the capability to invade Russia. But NATO has the ability to threaten Russia's ambitions to do more elsewhere. But it's really about Putin's political interests. And I think he miscalculated. And when we get to the decision in February, he was being told by his uh, supporters and by his regime that this was not going to be hard, uh, that they thought that in 2014, they had a fait accompli and they got what they needed, which was Crimea. And they thought that there were enough collaborators within Ukraine that they would be able to get into Kiev quickly, uh, get rid of Zelensky one way or another, and establish a, a new regime. And then they'd be able to go back home with a very friendly Ukrainian regime. What they did not understand and would not calculate was that the Ukrainians learned a lot of lessons in fighting in the Donbass over the past eight years. And we're going to fight and fight hard. And once this thing lasted more than a couple of days, all the calculations went out the window of a fait accompli, that they weren't going to get a, a surprise attack that was going to lead to, you know, the Ukrainians surrendering quickly. And once they started fighting back hard, then then it's, it's a war. And that was not what they were betting on. You mentioned this earlier. I know it's something that we can't uh, really predict just yet, but one would think that the performance by the Russian military so far in this invasion of Ukraine has done significant damage to their geopolitical position. You're right. They won't be invaded because they're a nuclear power, but at the same time, their ability to project power seems at least for now to have been severely damaged because of the failure of their, of their military uh, to carry out their mission in, in Ukraine. Well, when we speak about power, power usually refers to, how many tanks you have, how many aircraft you have, how, how robust your economy is, the size of your population, but it's also your reputation for power. How are you successful in doing what you, what you say you were going to do? Are you able to get other countries to do what you want them to do? And this war has basically hurt Russia's material power, that its economy is suffering under the sanctions, that it has lost essentially a British army's worth of tanks and other capabilities. Um, and it's also really hurt the Russian reputation that their military is really just not competitive. Uh, that it's poorly led, uh, that it has poor logistics, as we can see from all the Twitter threads about their tires as illustrations of, uh, of this stuff, and that they're not that hard to thwart. Now, what we're not really getting from 
uh, this war is really, we don't really know what the, the Ukrainians have lost militarily. Right. We don't really know the damage they've taken. But what we do know is the Russian damage that they've taken. And um, every day there's no, more stories and more videos that illustrate poor Russian leadership and poor Russian military capability. So their ability to bluster and bluff has declined quite a bit. So that's why they are leaning on the nuclear threat because they got nothing else. They don't really have any economic leverage anywhere in the world. And they don't have a military threat that's really all that threatening. They can do damage, but they can't win. And so the threat to NATO is, well, what might the Russians do? And the imagination uh, you know, causes us to boggle and think about all the things the Russians could do, but they can't take over and defeat uh, you know, much, much NATO territory. And now and so, they have, yes, sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say it. And as a result, you have Finland and Sweden not being deterred by these threats. And now suddenly Russia has new NATO, a NATO neighbor and another uh, regional quote unquote uh, neutral power also about to join NATO. Uh, Stephen Sabin, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. My pleasure, Ben.